Hi, this is Lee Sauls, author of Sales Differentiation, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Today's Lee Sauls. Lee is a leading sales management strategist specializing in building sales processes in companies. As an entrepreneur and founder of Sales Architects, he works with, he's a results-driven consultant and dynamic keynote speaker. He's helped hundreds of companies in various industries and sizes create marketplace disruption, leading to explosive, profitable growth. He's also a best-selling, award-winning author of several books. He's here today to talk about sales differentiation 19 powerful strategies to win more deals at the prices you want. Lee lives in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Welcome, Lee. Hi, how are you? Excited to be here. Hey, I'm excited to have you with me. It's great to be here with you. And Lee, tell me, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? So it wasn't just growing up, it's even still today, and that's Walt Disney. So many aspects fascinate me about Walt Disney. Everything from what it took for him to get the funding. Hundreds and hundreds of times he was turned down to get the funding to build Disney World, and he just persevered through it and ultimately achieved his dream. But the other part of it is, here I am 52 years old, and every time I visit Disney World with the family, I get rejuvenated. I get new ideas. And what's amazing to me, Bill, is so many people lose sight of that. I'll say to my wife and my kids, say, do a 360, turn around. I challenge you to find a smile. You're in Disney World. Why are you not smiling? And it's parents, come on, we got to see one more attraction. Oh, we got to get on this ride. Hurry. And the kids are miserable. No, no more. But if you take a step back and think about just being in that experience, the creative juices just flow. And so I look forward to going there because I know I'm always going to come away with some new creative ideas. What was your first introduction to Walt Disney? And did you do a book report on him when you were in in school? Second grade, my parents took me to Disney World. And that, that was my first taste of it. And that just fascinated me with the entire experience. And that's when I started doing some research on who is this guy? And of course, I'm 52. So in second grade, that meant open up the Walt Disney in the encyclopedia, which no one knows what that is today. It was like Wikipedia printed out those days. That's correct. I also did a report on Walt Disney in third grade. And I I thought it was interesting. You had the experience from visiting there and that led you to really look at the founder. I think that's fascinating for someone to do at seven or eight years old. Do you remember what occurred to you? Did you say, I want to know how this guy did this or created this? I want to do something like this. What were the ideas, if you can recall, at that point? My question was, where did he come up with the idea? That's what I wanted to know. Then do you remember what it was like when you realized how difficult it was and how much rejection he had to face in order to achieve that dream? It was absolutely fascinating because most of us would have given up long before. And I forgot the exact number, but it was literally hundreds of financial institutions said no. And you look back at on this perspective now is I want to build an entertainment park in the middle of a desert. And if you think about what I do for a living now, and it was different, it was different. So that's today part of what has me intrigued is what's different about it and they keep coming up with new innovations to make it even more different so they get ahead of the competition but they don't rest in their laurels they're constantly looking for ways to reinvent themselves and change the parts so that they stand out differentiation is definitely a key with disney and do you, and I see that it was planted early and has roots that are deep in, in your life and your areas of interest do you remember early on in your career when 
something maybe di- that Disney said or some action that he took inspired you to take a different course than if you hadn't had that early inspiration from him? It, it wasn't something he had said or done. It was more, I, I looked at the constant innovation. Yeah. So it's a, it's a constant reminder, a constant influence. And it's someone who he had a dream and persisted. He really was someone who persisted to bring his creative ideals to life. Yeah. What's really interesting. So again, I, I constantly look at this whole differentiation space. So let's say you have a theme park also in the Orlando area, and you want families to come to your park. You're competing against Disney. And what parks like Busch Gardens have done really was they've said, you know what? There is nothing we're going to say to a family that has five and six-year-olds that's going to get them to come here instead of go see Mickey Mouse. So if you look at their marketing, they've said, okay, that's not our primary market. That's not where we're going to focus. We're going to go after the teenagers who know that Cinderella is just someone in a costume. Mickey Mouse, unfortunately, is someone with a costume on. They want the daredevil rides. They want the exciting experience. So if you look at the marketing that they do, they're going after the families that have teenagers. And and they even get you thinking about it. Kids grow up, so should your vacations. That was one of their campaigns that they ran. And and I remember the first time I saw it, I'm watching a Yankee game because – You can tell from my accent, I may live in Minneapolis. I'm not from here originally. Watching a New York Yankees game, and there was a commercial I was watching with my sons who were teenagers, and that question was asked, and that led to a 10-minute conversation with the three of us because so often we've gone to Disney World. So the whole idea of understanding what your market is and go after it. If you know you, no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to sway someone to come to you like the case of Disney. You're not getting a five-year-old that wants to go to your park and say, of see Mickey Mouse. Not going to happen. So figure out your niche and focus there and develop the specialty. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And it really starts with understanding that market, finding out what their current needs and desires are, because there are ways to do it both indirectly and directly, aren't there? What is the, I remember from sales differentiation, you actually say, do the research and you point out some ways that people can go and find out research about their target market. What are a couple tips that you offer in that respect? Yeah. So there's a couple of exercises. One is to go through a competitor analysis and it's a very simple analysis. You're going to take a piece of paper. You're going to draw a line down the middle on one side, why we win on the other side, why they win and price can't be on either side of the ledger because people buy value. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time to get into all of those reasons. I'm hoping as small business owners, you recognize that price is not the driving factor in why people buy from you. It's the value. So take your primary competitors and make a list why you win, why they win. Then take a look at the decision influencers. These are the people that influence the decision to buy what you're selling. Most of the time, there are multiple people involved in that decision-making process. Take another sheet of paper, draw a line down the middle. On one side, what's keeping these people awake at night? What are their challenges, goals? What are they looking to accomplish that you can address? You need that other part. So you don't want the giant list of everything that's keeping them awake, only the aspects that you can address. On the right side, how can you help? What is it that you can do to help address this particular point? You said you can. That's why you wrote it down. The right side is how you can help. So how do you find your differentiators from those two exercises? You take the why you win column from the competitor analysis, 
the synergy side, which is the right-hand side of the decision influencer analysis of how you can help. And guess what? You've just made a master list of potential differentiators that you have. Walking through an example, you did this with a small business that didn't understand how they could compete in a marketplace and they thought that they were just selling something that was so commoditized. It, it would have been really difficult to come up with this exercise. But through this, they learned how to communicate their value differentiation. Yeah. So makes me think of one of the idiosyncrasies of Minnesota. Now, Bill, I know you got some family here. Maybe they haven't shared this with you. A lot of idiosyncrasies here, not just the temperature and, and the big mosquitoes. Right. All the water. That too. But one of the idiosyncrasies here is that just about every county, Minnesota, every homeowner, every business contracts for their own trash removal. You ever heard of that anywhere else, Bill? That is intense. So I've got a home office. Beyond my screen here is this big window. And every Wednesday morning, I have the parade going by. What's the parade? It's all the garbage truck representing every hauler you could name because every home has someone else that they work with. And these trucks seemingly do the same thing. Pulls up to the home, arm extends out, grabs the can, lifts it up, dumps the contents into the truck, puts the can back down, truck drives away, and you get an invoice at the end of the month. I remember this CEO, Mike, one of these companies reached out to me and he says, Lee, I got to tell you, I believe we have meaningful value. We have differentiators that our competitors don't have. And I believe that my salespeople are completely ineffective at positioning them. Now, I was intrigued because, Bill, I see this every Wednesday morning, the parade going by and it all looks the same to me. And quite frankly, if you wanted me to switch which company I was working with, all you'd have to do is say, I can save you a nickel and I'd switch. There's no loyalty with it. So they went through a sales differentiation program with me and we went through those exercises that I just described. And Mike was right on all counts. They did have meaningful differentiators and the salespeople were ineffective at positioning them in a meaningful way. And one of the ones that they uncovered was this truck that they have called a can be clean truck. And twice a year, this truck follows the garbage truck and cleans your garbage cans. Is that cool? Yeah. I thought it was going to be, I, I, that's interesting that it's about a truck that follows up. Yeah. And they didn't market or talk about that in their marketing in looking to tell people about it, huh? The problem is they never got to have the conversation. A salesperson would approach a homeowner to talk about their services. And most of them, like me, all we wanted to hear is save me a nickel and I'll switch to you. So they never got to talk about their differentiators. So we developed what I call a positioning question, which is an open-ended question that maps back to your differentiators designed to spark a conversation about it. And the question was this, when's the last time you had your garbage cans cleaned? Because we know they never have unless they did it themselves. Bill, have you ever had to clean your garbage? You're talking to someone who I, I have power washed them just because I had the power washer out. Did you? No. If I could have avoided no. it, I would have loved to. So think about what we've done right in that first moment. We've helped someone think differently about something as simple about uh, as a trash, not be something we've said, but rather a question that we've asked. Yeah. Why isn't someone cleaning my garbage cans? Now, here's the key takeaway from this. Accustomed to asking pain or challenge questions that expose aspects that someone perceives could be better or different than what they have today. But we know more about the world of potential solutions in our industry than the people that we sell to. And by definition, we're talking about differentiators. It's not everywhere, right? It's an aspect that we have. So if we ask a question like, what are three things you'd like to have that you don't have today? No one would say, I'd love it if someone cleaned my garbage 
garbage cans because they don't know it exists. That's exactly that right. That company's state of Minnesota that has that cabby clean truck. Very much a, a Henry Ford question where he says, if you asked people what they wanted in terms of a way to get around, they'd say a faster horse that needed to be fed less. Steve Jobs also is famous for saying, you can't ask the market when you're the expert at what you bring to the market. No one would ever have asked for the iPod or the iPhone, but because they knew the technology, they said, this is something that we can introduce. And the same way, when you ask these questions based upon your industry knowledge, you're now adding value right from the first point of the conversation. Exactly. That's exactly right. And and that's so important. I assume, Bill, you don't like to be lectured. When I sign up for it, but not in a sales conversation. No. And my kids don't like to be lectured. I know my wife doesn't want to be lectured, nor do I. But that's what we do when we're selling. We go in and we lecture them on how wonderful we are. And we expect that to be, oh, that's wonderful. Keep going. We need to make it a conversation. And the way that we do it is with these positioning questions that spark interest. So they want to hear what you have to say. So let's talk about a couple of these mistakes and very common ruts that salespeople are in. One of them is always saying and and starting off conversations, trying to position their product or service as being the best. And it becomes something that is so introduction, people don't even listen at that point. What else have you found with your research and training and working with customers all over the country about using that as a positioning statement? Yeah, we're not sensitive enough to the words and expressions that we use. Best is one. And the issue with the word best is most of us can't prove it, right? So we say best company, the best service, the best product, we can't prove it. And if you think about the times where someone has said to you, we have the best of the best, you don't say, oh, yippee. You go, oh, here we go. I call it the buyer eye roll because the game is afoot. So when it comes to best, that's something that others should be saying about us. If you think about what's significant is when someone who has used a particular product or service that comes to you and says, oh my God, this is the best. Now you pay attention. One, because they have credibility. And two, there's no financial benefit to them for saying that this is the best. So that's why it's meaningful when they say it. But there's other words and expressions. I'll I'll give you an example. We've all been taught in sales, a best practice is to set an agenda. Bill, it sounds like this. Bill, what I would like to do today is blah, 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 blah. What I want to do today, and then we do it. Think about what we've just done in this meeting. In the first few seconds, we've blown it because we've told them the purpose of this meeting is- Yeah, the salesman's wants. Here's what I want. And I don't know if this, Bill, there's only one person in the world who cares what you want. You know who that is? Your old mom. Cares what you want. So instead of setting an agenda, we propose one. For this to be a great use of your time today, what is it that you want to be sure we talk about? Think about what we've done. We've set a completely different tone for that meeting. You really are here for me. Now, there are parents words, Bill. I'll give you an example. We love to use this word help. Somewhere, some, somewhere in the line, someone said, always use the word help. Now, let me give you an example. There's an elderly woman at a street corner. And Bill, you're feeling chivalrous and you want to be helpful. And you walk up to her and say, let me help you cross the street. And she takes the cane and whacks you upside the head. I don't need help. But there's a gentleman next to her who says, you know what, Bill? I'd really appreciate I could use some help. And I extend my uninjured arm to him. And see, the mistake that we make is when we use that word help. So let me bring it to a sales environment. Let's say you have software that would help improve the customer service experience and you're meeting with the head of customer service and you say, I can help you have a better customer service experience. If that head of customer service has never said that's an objective that I have, you've just insulted that individual. I didn't say I've got uh, an issue with customer service. You said help. I first have to articulate a problem, a need 
before you can use so that word help. When you do know that you have a solution that could be helpful, what is the way that you offer people as an introduction into the conversation that allows them to discuss whether that's a true need? You give great setups. I'm going to bring us back to where we just were, Bill. Positioning questions. If we know the aspects of that customer service software that would be beneficial to this organization, we don't say things, we ask questions, right? If, if you think about it, if you've ever been to court or you watch court television, attorneys don't testify. What they master is questions. And they ask questions in a specialized way as part of the process. As someone is testifying, they ask specialized questions of that witness to paint a picture for the decision-making group, the jury, so they see exactly what the attorney wants them to see. If you've ever been to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, they don't give you the answer. They ask you questions, lead you down a path until you see what they see. And that's what we have to do. Bring us back telling somebody you have sales software that could help the customer service manager. How could you introduce the, the solution that you have in a way that whether they need it or not, you could have that conversation and make an informed decision as to whether that would be a helpful solution in their company at this time. So you could pose a question like, in our work with heads of customer service, we're hearing about three initiatives to improve A, B, and C. Are those initiatives that you're also working on? And of course, those three tie back to the Exactly. That's exactly the kind of thing that so many business leaders are looking for, is a way to say, we've found this to be valuable with other customers we're working with. Is this something that would be of interest to you? And it can be posed as a cold opening, couldn't it? It could be sent as a cold email or cold letter? And what does it do when you give people those options? Then it allows them to respond and say, you know what? This is a problem. This is an area that we haven't figured out the answer. Guess what? We do have the answer and now we're prepared to have a conversation. And then say that you're here to offer help once they've said this is something we are in need of. Correct. When someone articulates a desire for assistance, then we can use the word help. sales differentiation that you talked about something that I love because I'm a big law and order fan. I love the crime scene. Wow. What is it? The crime scene? The crime scene theory. Yeah. The sales crime. Theory. Right, so let me say, I, I love in the book, Lee, how you describe the sales crime theory because I'm a big law and order fan. And I love how you go through this very methodical procedure to look for the evidence and let the evidence lead you to where it makes sense to initiate certain operations or conversations in the process. Could you walk me through some of the key steps in that theory that you've developed? Absolutely. So let me go back to step. I have seen all 456 episodes of Law & Order multiple times to a level where when I watch other shows, so my wife and I are into 24 now. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's fantastic. And I keep recognizing actors and actors going, hey, he was in Law & Order. She was in Law & Order. So that, and when we were dating way back when the show was still new, that was one of our date night things is to watch the new Law and Order episode. So yes, we share that. Yeah. And so here's the, the basis of the sales crime theory. Imagine it's two in the morning. There's a pounding on your front door. It's the police. They want to have a conversation with you about a crime that's recently been committed. Now they don't randomly pick you and your home for this conversation. What do they do? They analyze the evidence, put together a crime theory, which leads them to you for a conversation right now. And it's the same concept that we apply when we talk about a sales crime theory. 
theory. And it's founded in the answer to this question. Why should they want to have a conversation with you right now? Not why should we talk with them? That would be egocentric. Why should they want to have a conversation with you right now? So I have this client, his name is Phil, and he's in the AV equipment business specifically for conference rooms. So the first step that we did together was to figure out what types of evidence, if we came across it, would tell us that they should want to have a conversation with us right now. So you're talking with Phil, and what were some of the the ideas or responses that you came up with as part of this brain sharing session? Yeah, so what we did was we said, okay, we know if there's a relocation, an acquisition, a new CIO getting hired, that there was probably going to be a conversation going on about the technology in the conference room. And since that's what we do, they should want to have a conversation with us right now. So then our next step was, so now we knew the types of evidence we were looking for. Where are we going to find it? How do we find this evidence? So then we brainstormed ways to learn when those things were going on so that we could personalize. And is it something that you did by making Google alerts that would automatically search and find you news stories and press releases about companies making these moves? Was it just setting up something like that? Or were there active searches maybe on LinkedIn? What were some of the the tangible steps that you took in that respect, Lee? Multiple steps. And you just touched on a number of them was monitoring the business journal because business journal gives you local news. So you'd find out about an acquisition, a relocation, celebrating a new CIO coming in. But they'd also monitor if a CIO was hired one place, they were probably going to be hiring a new CIO in the other place. So it generated two touch points for them. So that was another aspect. But Google Alerts, and I don't know if our listeners, have you talked about Google Alerts before? Tremendously helpful. And best of all, for all of our listeners, they're free. Do a Google search on Google Alerts. Google Alerts are. And maybe they've started to use them, but haven't gotten the results that really led them to say this is valuable. What are a couple insights you've gained that lead you to really make this a, a terrific source of leads? So the first thing is you need to do a search on Boolean and learn what those those search strings are so that you can get the exact information that you want. I know some people get frustrated, just like anytime you search in Google and you get 16 million results back, that's not overly helpful. Boolean will help you narrow it down. So let's use the example that we talked about here. They were in Louisiana specifically. So relocation plus Louisiana, new CIO plus Louisiana, acquisition, Louisiana. So those are examples of the types of searches that we put together. Together. We also did things like, what was it, uh, conference room technology. So anytime there was something that popped up there, while that may not be a component of a sales crime theory, they always wanted to know what the competitors we're up to. So that would help them monitor the competitive. As she was thinking, they probably would set up an alert for a conference room equipment repair, because if they're looking to repair something, they're open to an introduction to a new brand or a new technology. Your book is full of stories as well as great principles. And you're typically on the side of helping people become better at selling to others. However, you also had an example, an experience when your son was a junior in high school. Like my son, both our, our sons played college D1 sports. And what was it like? What did you learn about the way that you were approached by some of the coaches that were looking to bring your son onto their baseball teams when they really apparently couldn't differentiate based upon the restrictions and limitations of what a D1 program offered? What was your experience with that? Because it's always funny to hear that perspective from someone who's an industry expert. Yeah, I I was actually just reminiscing about this. My son just finished his sophomore year and won the Triple Crown 
on, on baseball. So he had the most home runs, batting, led in batting average, and most RBIs. Had a great season, finishing a sophomore. He's you said D one. He's actually at a D three, Augsburg University, Minneapolis. Yep. And it got me reminiscing about when he was getting recruited. See, his junior year of high school, and, and maybe you had this experience, Bill. My wife and I were on him saying, Stephen, you, you got to start looking at colleges. Let's go. A little slow in doing that. I don't know if you had that experience as well. I find talking to parents that all the kids that junior year, they got to get a kick started a little bit. But at the end of his junior year, just as the summer was beginning, he was asked to play on the American Legion baseball team in, in our city. And during the tournament, he hit four home runs. Wow. And if not, yeah, not not a bad week. And if you're not familiar with American Legion, this is where the college scouts come looking for talent. What better time to be hot than in this type of a tournament? And based on that performance, no longer were we asking Steven to contact colleges. They were now contacting us. And if you've ever been through a college recruiting experience before, it's a sale. These coaches are trying to sell you on their institution, on their program, but they can't differentiate what they sell. They can't add a major. They can't create a dorm or move the campus. It's all fixed assets. So all they can do is differentiate how they sell. And some of these coaches were absolutely fantastic at it, and some failed miserably. Now, you know, Bill, when you first drive onto a college campus, as soon as you cross the border onto the campus, your blood pressure jumps about 30 points. You know why? Can't find a place to park. Every single parking lot says, park here, and we're going to tow you, but welcome to our fine institution. We'll build this one school we visited. We pull into the parking lot, and there's a spot with Steve name on us. Stop this. Then we go inside and there's an agenda for the day with Stephen's name printed at the top. What did it cost this school to do these things? A penny maybe for the paper and the ink, but think about what they did. They made us feel like Stephen was the only athlete they were recruiting anywhere on the planet for any sport. Of course, that wasn't the case, but that's how they made us feel. And there's an important takeaway message for us in sales. It's not just another call another meeting, another proposal, another client. We forget to make every single one of them feel special. And, and I embrace this myself. One of the things that I do is I make every one of my clients feel as if they are my only one. If you interviewed any of my clients said, how many active clients does we have right now? They wouldn't have a clue. They would assume one. And that's such an opportunity for us. We forget to make clients feel special. And so a foundation question that I have for all of you is this. What is it that I can do different than the competition that my buyer will find meaningful? So look at every touch point, every interaction you have and ask yourself that question. What is it that I can do different than my competition that my buyer will find meaningful? So it's not different for the sake of different, it's meaningful meaningfully different. And it's amazing if you take the time to analyze your overall process, all those touch points from the first time you have outreach to the way you handle customer service, the way you handle account management, the way you put together a proposal. Every one of them gives you those opportunities if you take a step back and think about it. Now, here's the kicker with this story, right? There were seven schools after Stephen after that performance. The one that was top of his list, number one, bags packed he was going there, was number seven at the end of the process. They didn't get rid of a major. They didn't knock down a dorm and they didn't move the campus. It was the recruiting experience, the way he was being sold. How bad was it? We just went through this process with his brother, David, who's a pitcher. That school wasn't even on the consideration list. He had no interest in going there. 
based on the prior experience. And the message for small business leaders is, first of all, dedicate the time to ask these strategic questions, because simply by repositioning, creating an agenda, making people feel welcome, it's something that your competition overlooks. And when you've listened to this tip from Lee Sauls on My Quest for the Best, you know how important it is because college coaches are recruiting people who pay hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it makes a big difference for the teams, the coaches, the athletic directors, and the university relations overall. So this is big money we're talking. And I say this very knowledgeably because Villanova, which is right down the street from us, won the NCAA basketball championship just a few years ago, twice. And it's made such a difference. You suddenly see their campus completely revitalized, new buildings going up along Lancaster Avenue, and it's all made possible because winning sports teams attract a more competitive pool of students to their campus. Donations. (laughs) Yes, alumni donations. It's just a great virtuous cycle. So I'm so glad that people who are listening to this now have the benefit of being reminded of how important this exercise is, knowing that if when you want to differentiate sales, you've heard about Lee Saltz's method and the resource that sales architects offer. Lee, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Excellent. So at the beginning of the story, we talked about someone who was influential and inspiring to you growing up. We talked about Walt Disney. When you were a teenager, Lee, what song did you love? Oh, September. A huge Earth, Wind, and Fire fan. Do you remember? Now the listeners just turned off. You'd be surprised. So when you are prospecting and looking to introduce your company to those who have need based upon the sales crime theory, what's one of the most distinctive ways that you've found to reach people, especially during the pandemic? We don't think enough about this. There's strategy needed in both the quantitative and the qualitative side to the outreach. So the sales crime theory addressed the qualitative side, our messaging, if you will. But the quantitative side, we don't think enough about. You've seen the studies, most salespeople give up way too early. They try once or twice, they say, oh, they're not interested. But we need to be mindful and say, we need a strategy for that. So I put together what I call a prospecting rhythm. It's spread out over four weeks, calling at different times of the day, using different techniques, not just phone, email. And I'll give you one little nugget. Whoever created Outlook for us, that development team, did something that you all know it does, but you probably not used it for prospecting. If you send someone an invite, whether they accept it or not, it appears in their calendar. So you can leave a voicemail message saying, hey, I'll I'll try you back again tomorrow at 2 p.m. and send an invite. Guess what? It's popped up in their calendar, which increases your chances of being able to reach that individual. But we don't think enough about the strategy side for the quantitative side of the outreach. And you need just as much strategy there as you do on the qualitative side. What would you say is the best business advice you've ever received? It's, uh, I, I don't know who to credit this quote to. I'd rather have part of a watermelon than all of a grape. You ever heard that one? I love that. You've heard it before? I have. I don't know who said it either, but it's very... Someone I worked for, gosh, 30 years ago said it, and it always stuck with me, and I researched it, and I could not find who the author is of that expression. But if you think of the message of that, I'd rather have part of a watermelon than all of a grape. All the small business owners listening to us today can relate to that. Yeah. What would you say is the best $100 purchase you've made in the last six months for personal or business? Someone had a very creative idea. I mentioned about my son's playing baseball. And it ran, it was a little under $100. But when my boys like video whenever they're playing, not for dad, for them, because they're always looking at what they're doing and trying to improve. And so I'd have to take my phone and hold it up against the fence. Someone came up with this contraption that you can put your phone in and it has bungee cords and attaches to the fence. You hit record and enjoy the game. What's a book that you've given the most as a gift that's not one of your own? Oh, that's a great one. 
It's the uh, the Go Giver by Bob Berg. Yes, and, and I don't know if you had a chance to interview Bob, but he is a wonderful guy. Just a great book. Same here. I think the world of him, and he has actually. We've been lucky enough to have him on my quest oh, for the wonderful. best. Wonderful. Yeah, Lee, tell me. Complete the sentence. I'm being successful when. What's your definition of personal success? When I have life balance. And what does that look like? For me personally? Yeah. Um, that means that I'm helping my clients be successful in their business. I'm helping my family to be successful in what it is they're trying to do. I'm keeping my own health. I compete in powerlifting. I compete in the bench press. Still at age 52. Just won the state tournament a couple of weeks ago. Right. Thank you. And make sure that's all part of my life. And can't forget my my two dogs, Rocky and Kona, and, and, and enjoying them as well. So being well-rounded, I've made certain life decisions where I could have moved the needle, made a lot more money in life. I could have built a hierarchy of people, management systems underneath me and stuff. I made a decision early on that wasn't the lifestyle that I wanted. And so I, I received an email on a Friday from someone saying, I read your book. I want to get your help. I'm sure you have other people that work for you that I would need to work with, but I'd love to talk with you. And the reality is I don't have people underneath me. It's me. And part of it is someone reads the book or talks with me. They want me to be the one that works with them to build the strategies to help their business to be successful. Of course. Now, in the last year or so, what would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction. Can I say one that I wish I stopped? Sure. Mint Milano's. <laughs> when, you have, when you're at home uh, as much as we all were in the last year, it's very easy to lose sight of the importance of diet. And I'm guilty of that. I'm working my way back on, on some dietary things, uh, as are a lot of people. It, when you're trapped at home and, you, and you're not necessarily making the best dietary decisions, we'll say. You've got to use some of that strength that you've developed in training for powerlifting as willpower to not put those in your cart when you go through the store. Exactly. <laughs> Step back, Natalie. Sales differentiation and differentiation in general is something that's vastly overlooked as a way to position one's company and one's business at the right place. Now, the subtitle of your book is 19 Powerful Strategies to Win More Deals at the Prices You Want. It's not to compete on price so that you could win more business because that's just a, a slippery slope that leads to bad outcomes and results. It's being able to position yourself as the superior choice. What are a couple of the myths that business owners you've encountered commonly make about differentiation? I don't know if it's so much a myth, but it's a mistake that I see very often. And that is we toss out differentiators and we leave it to the person on the other side of the desk to figure out its context, its meaning, if you will. So we'll say we're the biggest or we're privately held. And we expect someone on the other side of the desk to figure out what that means and why they should care about it. It's like the advantage to their business with doing business with you. So if you do that, one of two bad things happens. They either never figure it out where they give it a meaning that's not going to help your sale. So anytime we're talking about a differentiator, we have to give it context, we give it meaning. Because if they don't figure it out, all the criteria is going to come down to one element, which is price. And Bill, unless you're the low price provider, that's not going to help you. So give me an example of how to give it the context that you've helped others with, maybe another client or um, customer, 
based upon your experience. So we get the actual context of that in an example. Sure. We were talking about that garbage company. I'll give you another differentiator. They said to me, it went through an exercise, share with me one that you talk about. And they said, we're privately held. And I said, great. And tell me why that matters. And not a person in the room can answer the question. I said, wait a minute. For 40 years, you've been going out preaching that you're privately held, expecting it to be meaningful to someone on the other side of the desk, and you can't even answer the question? Then they start talking amongst themselves. Yeah, 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 we got to stop talking about that. I go, time out, time out. How many of you have worked for a publicly traded company? About half of them had. So in a publicly traded company, what's the A number one priority? They said the numbers. I said, exactly. So if you're the head of customer service, you say, boy, I need 10 more people to handle all these incoming calls. And that's 10 people more than what you've been budgeted. Good luck getting it because it's going to distort the numbers. What about in a privately held company? What's the A number one priority? They said the clients. So isn't there a story there? And there was, and we put it together. So that's an example of going through that exercise and giving it meaningful context. Another example from that same part in the book that I really loved was when they talked about we're a privately held company, and that means that we own our own trucks, and it means that we control what happens. And the end result of that discussion was they hadn't missed a day of pickup in over decades. I don't know, it was 30-something years or something. Yeah, they'd give me another differentiator that they're locally owned and operated. And when I asked again why that matters, and not a person in the room could tell me. And so when we fleshed all that out, what they really came away with was that they've developed an expertise in a very difficult climate to provide that type of service because we get temperatures here, temperatures like minus 35, temperatures, 100 degrees. Where else on the planet do you get that type of a delta in in temperatures? Lee, you've been so generous in sharing your wisdom and experience with me on my quest for the best. I want to thank you so much for bringing up Walt Disney, who's invigorating and inspiring to so many of us, for talking about different decision influencers, who are the people who make the decisions, but also those who influence those decisions being made, and talking about it through such great lucid examples that everyone listening could benefit from, helping us understand how to make some of these charts that you describe in the book about columns about why we win and why our competition wins, and looking at those examples specifically. For talking about how to look at making differentiation a priority, like the coach did from the school that actually recruited your older son. Because when you think that you can't change certain things, there are things you can change that matter to the, the buyer. So, We also talked about the importance of what does it take to make people feel special in a way that is meaningful to them in the buying process. And we talked about one of my favorites, which is the sales crime theory. So Lee, for these reasons and so many more, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Bill, thank you so much. Before we say goodbye for now, tell me, where is it that we can find out more about you and your work online? So certainly connect with me on LinkedIn or follow my company on LinkedIn, Sales Architects. I'm always sharing uh, helpful content there. You can also visit my website, which is salesarchitects.com. We're going to link to salesarchitects.com so that people could read the blog articles and look at the materials on there, learn even more, and sign up for your newsletter. We'll connect with you on social media and put in the show notes of this episode all of the links so people listening to this episode find it super easy to connect with you. And we'll also link, of course, to your book, Sales Differentiation. Lee Sauls, 
author of Sales Differentiation, 19 Powerful Strategies to Win More Deals at the Prices You Want. Thank you again so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Bill, thank you. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.